you all. This is future me quickly hopping into this podcast I'm currently editing. After listening to it, I realized that Matthias and I occasionally fell into the totem pro parte trap of saying the positive reinforcement community when criticizing something that in fact only refers to a minority of individuals and organizations. For example, we'd be thinking of specific individual trainers or organizations, but because we didn't want to name names, we ended up saying quote-unquote positive reinforcement trainers or quote-unquote the positive reinforcement community. I want to make two things clear. First, there is no such thing as the positive reinforcement community, just like there's no such thing as being religious. I don't like this comparison, but it's the best one I can think of right now. Being religious means probably as many different things as there are different people out there who would refer to themselves as religious. So it would be gravely reductionist to say the religious community, because there is no such thing. Not only are there lots of different religions, even within these religions there are lots of different fractions. The same is true for dog trainers. There is no one positive reinforcement community. If you don't recognize yourself in the criticism we pose in this podcast, we're not talking about you. If we are talking about you, you will know. Chances are that you will not recognize yourself in this podcast because we really are only talking about a minority. Second, I would like to point out that a positive reinforcement-based community I myself have a large intersection with on my dog training Venn diagram is FDSA. We do not talk about FDSA here, but as a whole, I really appreciate the genuine openness and authenticity many FDSA trainers live by, and I am happy to be one of them. No pledges, just humans. Okay, here's today's podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. I'm happy to be sharing another conversation with my friend and colleague, Matthias Lentz, today. I have built a new habit of starting each podcast with a random dog fact or a fun training anecdote. Do you have one for us, Matthias? Uh, wow, put on the spot. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't know. Maybe I can just talk about the video I shared with you this morning of my son yeah. start to teach my dog to roll a ball with her nose and like I haven't spent much time teaching my kids about dog training I'm not trying to force it on them let's put it that way I just like naturally talk about it they watch me and I was just like, so pleasantly surprised to watch him do everything right and he just taught my dog this behavior marking saying the right things he just did everything right and I was really proud yeah, I watched that video and I was like, well, did he watch you teach that to other dogs? He looks like he really knows what he's doing. It was so cool. Yeah, it was surprising to me. It's the skill that we teach our service dogs for autism, but I don't think I've ever told him that. So it was just, I don't know, maybe he's a natural, although he's, of my two sons, less interested in the dog. We'll see. I'm not going to try and make him a dog trainer, but if he wants to be one, I'll support him. I think that's the best approach because if you try and make him a dog trainer, he's going to run the other way. Yes. I, yeah, totally. Let's dive right in. We were going to talk about a fun and controversial topic today. I've been meaning to invite you back on the podcast for a while because there's always things that I think would be interesting to have a more public conversation with you about. The reason that you're here right now is that you posted something that was really well written. And I was like, okay, I've got to do this now. Would you like to share a little bit about the background story there? Yes, yeah, so I made a Facebook post to my friends and you have to be a friend with me if you want to see it. I'm not going to make it public because I would worry about that getting out of hand. My friend list is somewhat curated. I was talking about just because you're using positive reinforcement, it isn't the kindest thing to do. 
I'm frustrated with this notion that we should never use any aversives. Everything should be done with positive reinforcement. And by using positive reinforcement only, we are the kindest we can be. And I just don't believe it's true. People have strong feelings about aversives or punishments. But if we work under the guidelines of Lima, then aversives should be an option. And minimally aversive shows us that aversives come in all forms. They can be very aversive or they can be mildly aversive. And we should try and use the least intrusive, minimally aversive that we can find. And if we do so, I believe there's very little risk of fallout. There's a lot of times zero fallout. It can provide clarity to a dog. It can get you to your goals faster sometimes. I'm against fear and intimidation and pain whenever possible. There can be arguments made that if it's a life or death situation, maybe you want to go there, but let's not go there. (laughs) Yeah, because that's an exceptional situation. Yes, like 98, 95% of the time we can do it without that. But in the positive reinforcement community, there's a refusal to acknowledge this, to talk about it. And I think we're doing the community, the dog training world, the young trainers, especially a disservice if we don't talk about it, because it creates this illusion that everything should and can be done with positive reinforcement only. And I think it has people worry about, they feel like they're a failure if they use it or if they contemplate it, if they even think about it. But I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true. I agree with you. I think also it's important to say we're not saying that positive reinforcement isn't a lot of the time that is the best way to get from A to B. But sometimes it can be used in combination with something else that will provide the learner with additional clarity and actually make for better communication without the learner feeling intimidated at all. For example, if you say no to something that I ask you, I'm not going to be intimidated. I'm just going to understand you much better than if you were um den heißen Freiherr umreden. How do you say that in English? Uh, avoid the topic, I suppose. Avoid the topic or make some vague excuses or excuse it maybe or just say no. And I'm like, okay, great. Moving on. Yeah. Yeah. And no in the human world. I'm sure there are parenting communities out there who say you can never say no to your child. Why not? There's nothing wrong with that word. It can be a very neutral tool to communicate this, not now, something else instead. Yeah. And I would say since I got kids, I have all ambitions to be as nice as possible. I believe in the power of positive reinforcement. And again, I think if I'm considering aversives, then it's always in conjunction with positive reinforcement. I'm reinforcing what I want, but then I might consider adding some aversive. And the aversives don't come in if I'm teaching a dog a new behavior. When they are useful, I find, is when it's a well-rehearsed behavior that has paid off for the dog for a long time. If we're only sticking to positive reinforcement, it can be much harder to get that habit go away, but also not resurface again, because they have all this reinforcement history, as we know, that's very powerful. And so they will go back to that. But if we can teach them, you know what, I know this has paid off for you in the past, but now not only is it not paying off, it has the opposite effect and again it doesn't need to be like this is going to be a spanking it just has the opposite effect of what you're trying to accomplish sarah Stramming talks about the milk coming out of a faucet 
It's not hot oil coming out of the water. If you want to wash your hands, you turn that faucet and hot oil comes out. You will never touch that faucet again. But if it's milk, then you're like, oh, I'm not going to wash my hands with milk. Right. So I'm not go there anymore. I prefer not to do that. But that wasn't an overly terrible experience. Yeah. It's just it's not expected. Yeah. That's a great yeah. metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would highly recommend her podcast episode called Punishment Within Lima because she talks about examples where she used punishment. They are great examples of no fear. She's also talking about petting a dog that wants food, demand barks for food. And she was like, this dog loves petting, but not in that moment. In that moment, the dog is focused on the food. So she went and petted the dog and told her what a good dog she was. And the dog's like, no, feed me. The result was that the barking went away. And it's those kind of things that we should talk about. Because if you add that in, then you're going to be more efficient, I believe. And a lot of times that then is also the kind of thing to do because you can move away from management and so you can have the dogs participate in your life more. Yeah, I think you also mentioned that we do use mild aversives all the time. I'm putting some of what you had said in my own words, so please correct me if I'm rephrasing it in a way that you didn't mean it. But even in the R plus community, we may be denying that we're using mild aversives or we may be consciously doing it, but we're afraid to talk about it because we don't want to lose our community. But I think it's really hard to avoid. Personally, I can't even really consider myself part of that community anymore. I find that I often have more overlap with some excellent balance trainers, especially also when it comes to being open and curious about the world and other trainers. For example, I use negative punishment anytime it seems like the clearest way of kindly getting my point across. If I have to remove the dog from a situation, that's negative punishment because it's the removal, for example, of social interaction. And for a dog who enjoys socializing, that is negative punishment. And that can work really well if the dog is jumping up on a five-year-old or bullying another dog and I give them a very brief timeout or just stop them briefly and then let them try again, they're not going to be traumatized by this. But they will learn that the thing that they like doing actually goes away when they're being a bully. And yes. that is negative punishment. That's not positive reinforcement. But it's also nothing horrible that we're doing to the dog. Yeah, I'm with you in that I tried to make the positive reinforcement community my home for a really long time, but it never really sat 100% well with me because I felt like people refused to talk about certain things, refused to look at other trainers just because they train differently. And at this point, I started removing myself from the community, which is sad. It shouldn't be like that. But like yourself, I feel like I'm seeing more in common with good balance trainer because they're open to talk about everything. I feel like freshly hatched newbies in the positive reinforcement world are often really discouraged away from even, say, listening to a podcast that's made by a balance trainer where they might get input that is really helpful. Unless you dare seek that out, maybe without telling anyone in the darkness under your blanket after midnight, then you will never even know that these trainers exist, right? Because the community really protects itself in this way. It's so strange once you think about it. And they may think that all these trainers are just terrible, abusive. And then you listen, wait a second. A, not only are you not abusive or don't take the dog's experience into consideration, but you're actually providing some valuable conversations that just do not get talked about within the positive reinforcement community. It's just disappointing because 
I think still, in many ways, the positive reinforcement trainers I have more in common with for the most part, because I am very positive in my training. I think what's happened to me is I've realized that a lot of balanced trainers talk a good game, but then when I see them train or whatever, I'm like, ooh, okay, you talk about using minimally aversive techniques, but then I watch them like, that is not minimally aversive. Setting them up for failure and stuff like that. And if we could just combine the two, if everybody talked to each other, we could get to the best. And I think it's happening, but it's not happening enough. The big Facebook arguments are oftentimes the unskilled, not very knowledgeable positive reinforcement trainers against the balanced trainers and the skilled trainers are in the middle. But I think in the positive reinforcement community, there's a lot of decision makers, big names that are part of the problem. Yeah. You said that training-wise, in practice, you have a lot in common with many people who would call themselves positive reinforcement trainers. In practice, in terms of training, I do too. But I have a lot in common with certain trainers in the balance world in that at the center of my training is the learner, not the ideology. And a lot of the time at the center of people who call themselves, quote unquote, the positive reinforcement community is the ideology and not the learner. But I believe it's the learner who we have to put at the forefront of our attention. And every learner is different. Yes. Yeah. So the same ideology does not make sense for every learner. It's like this old cartoon where they say, oh, everyone has to pass the same test. So this is fair. Everyone has to climb this tree. And then one of the participants is a fish. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And uh, one thing that I mentioned in my post was that I was less experienced than I am today. And I was reaching out to a trainer that was mostly in the positive reinforcement community, but was talking about aversives. I knew she was open to the use of aversives. I was reaching a limit with a dog and I did want to check myself before adding an aversive. So I was reaching out to her and I ran my training plan past her. Here's what I'm planning to do. This is my assignment of why the dog is doing it, blah, 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 blah. And so I expected her to be like, yes, that's what I would do too. And I just wanted to hear that. I can admit that I was seeking permission to use punishment, but definitely I was hoping she would give me that permission and I could do it and feel good about it. But what happened was she was asking me more questions. We talked about it more. And then pretty quickly she was like, I wouldn't go there. And she basically provided me with a positive reinforcement plan and I didn't use any punishment. For me, there was such a big moment where I was like, wow. And that's what happens when you can talk about this stuff. I don't know why I ended up asking her, but I could have very easily gone. I think we've reached the limit of positive reinforcement here. Anyways, through the conversation about aversives, I ended up not using an aversive. And I just wish we would be able to have those conversations in the positive reinforcement community. Yeah, and dare to ask these questions. Yeah. Yeah. I was in positive reinforcement forums asking those questions and people behind the scenes would tell me, oh, that's so great. Thank you for asking that. But a lot of people were very shy to chime in. Yeah. And there were a lot of people trying to put holes into my theory or just telling me how I'm wrong, showing me how I was wrong. In the end, I grew tired of it. I was like, well, nobody else is here with me. They behind the scenes give me support, but nobody's actually, not nobody, but the majority does not. Mm -hmm. I just grew tired of all the people that tried to make me feel bad about asking that question. And so I stopped asking them. And luckily, I have people now in my life 
life that I can ask. I have one very good friend who is much less willing to go to any aversives or whatever. So she's a really good one for me. I ask her, I was like, hey, here's what I'm thinking. And a lot of times she will be like, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? And I'm like, oh no, you know what? I have not. And thank you. It's just, we should learn from each other by talking about these things. And there's so much to learn for everyone who participates in the conversation. And you're right. If asking a question gets punished, we stop asking questions. That's just really, really sad. I would like to see more people ask more questions. But before we get carried away, let's just define when you use the word aversive, what do we mean? Because it's not a word like punishment, which has a scientific definition. It decreases behavior. But what is an aversive? How would you define it? I've looked it up. In psychology, aversives are unpleasant stimuli that induce changes in behavior via negative reinforcement or positive punishment. By applying an aversive immediately before or after behavior, the likelihood of the target behavior occurring in the future is reduced. And so that's from psychology, and I'm assuming that's what we should be using with dogs. If you look it up in non-psychological terms, a lot of times it says it elicits a strong dislike for something. When I Google it, there were two versions of that. And I don't look at it as a strong dislike. I only look at it like an aversive discourages a certain behavior. As I said, like petting a dog that doesn't want to be pet that moment, that is an aversive to that dog. But it's not a terrible one because the dog is not afraid of getting petted. It's just a preference of not getting petted. Another example could be a dog that jumps up at you, you leave the room. That is an aversive experience to the dog because they were like, hey, I want to be with you and you left me. But we do this every day. We leave the dogs home alone every day. I read a study that 90, over 90% of dogs have some negative reaction to their owners leaving, but it's not so bad that they can't cope. And I think a lot of positive reinforcement trainers admit those punishers and aversives happen in natural life, but they are like, you should not be using them deliberately. But then again, I think they think of something really harsh, something that is pain, fear, intimidation. That's not what I'm talking about when I'm talking about aversives. It's so interesting that you looked it up. I didn't look it up, I have to admit. I just assumed that it wasn't a scientifically defined word. I thought punishment has a clear definition. There's a consequence that decreases behavior, while aversive is just a word that people use to mean whatever they want it to mean. But it seems like actually there are definitions out there. Thank you for clarifying that. I wonder if I actually want to use that term then. Because when it does reduce behavior, I will use the term punishment. I will call it what it is. I will call it positive punishment or negative punishment. I'll have to think about this. Because <laughs> by that definition, it's not an aversive. If I ask you, do you want to come over for dinner? And you say no. I want to be able to include this in a term that I'm using. But that does not meet the definition of aversive. Because it's basically just information. This is me chiming in from the future as I'm re-listening and editing this episode. In fact, saying no does meet the definition of punishment as well as the definition of aversive in some scenarios, but not in others. Let's look at two scenarios. If I invited you for dinner and you said no, and then I didn't invite you for dinner again, no has worked as a punisher. It has reduced my likelihood of inviting you for dinner. On the other hand, if I invited you for dinner and you said no, and I invited you for dinner again the next day and again the next day after, even if you kept saying no, your behavior of saying no would not be considered punishment or aversive. It hasn't reduced my behavior of inviting you. It's the learner, the individual who receives the consequence, whose behavior decides whether something is punishment slash aversive or not.
what I was thinking about today was that my credit card is broken and it doesn't tap anymore and the chip doesn't work properly. It taps sometimes or I have to do it a certain way. That is quite a aversive experience because you look like you like you stand there and you're trying to pay and your credit card then gets declined and there's a whole bunch of people watching you. And I've been dealing this for weeks now and I'm like eh, eh, trying to get that on. I've actually decided to not purchase things because I dreaded the experience of using the card. <laughs> and so I was just thinking of that experience that normally is totally fine has turned into an aversive for me and has had positive outcomes because I'm saving money. <laughs> <laughs> that is so funny because I didn't know where you were going to go with this. And I thought you were going to go with its intermittent reinforcement. And now you just keep using this credit card and you don't get a new one because every once in a while it works. <laughs> no, I got a new one. <laughs> it came today and I was so relieved. Oh. Yeah, that's where I went there. I was like, finally, I can just tap and it works. It will be so pleasant. But I, I didn't stop using it for sure. And I tried pushing it harder. So there's that. Extinction <laughs> first. But it wasn't, it, yeah, it wasn't pleasant. Yeah. Also, it depends on the learner, right? What is aversive to one dog may not be aversive to another dog. When I'm working with client dogs, I try to be as kind and gentle and effective as I can. What that means really does depend on the dog and the human in front of me, and it can mean all kinds of things. Then I was thinking about human examples again, and we really all experience these things differently. There was a group of friends the other week, and we were discussing what feels like relationship red flags versus relationship green flags. And green flags is basically the opposite of a red flag. Something that someone does that makes you feel like the connection you have with that person is a good one. What I found so interesting in that conversation is that we realized that our red flags and our green flags were really personal. Things that were red flags for some people were green flags for other people. For example, someone mentioned that it was a huge green flag for them when someone showed that they cared, the means of checking in by text message a lot. They really liked it when someone asked them, did you get there safely? Are you on your way home already? Did you get home all right? And to me, this same exact experience when someone keeps texting me about this is a red flag. I don't like when folks ask me if I got back home to my house okay. I tolerate it because I know it's a token way of showing that you care that has been culturally instilled in us. To me, that same thing kind of feels like someone is surveilling me or I'm considered too weak to defend myself in case someone were to try and mug me on my walk home. Surveillance is a no-go. And also, I want the people who care about me and who I care about to trust that I am fucking strong enough that I could knock out or outrun any potential mugger. But anyways, I don't usually say that because I recognize that sending me this text message is about the other person. It's not about me. Some people need to ask this question in order to be able to go to bed themselves or they have learned that this is what you do. Yeah, just like they need to give a cookie to the dog to make themselves feel better. <laughs> I know, yeah. Connecting these two things was interesting to me when I was thinking about our podcast. Yeah. Did you get home okay is mildly aversive to me and positively reinforcing to someone else. The same goes for dogs. Like the petting example that you mentioned, some dogs really like to be petted. Other dogs really don't like it, but it is assumed that all dogs like it. 
And what I loved about the example Sarah gave is that the dog likes to be petted, but not in this context. Yeah. That is always the thing too, right? Something that might be positive reinforcement in 95% of the cases is a punishment that 5% of the other cases. That reminds me of something. (laughs) I once had a dog who did not like to be petted, but very much liked to beg for food at the dinner table. Once again, this is future me. Oh, my dog. I hope I don't make popping in from the future. I have it in all my podcast edits. They already take me hours. Anyways, I want to clarify something about the story you're about to hear that I didn't explain when I told it. The dog I'm about to talk about is Fanta, my greyhound. He's not here anymore, but he had a wonderful life for as long as he was. Fanta was a good snuggler, and he wasn't afraid of strangers at all. What he disliked was when people would do that tap, tap, tap petting on his head that many non-dog people do. It is common for dogs to dislike this, and common for people to do exactly that. Fanta would tolerate this briefly and then walk away if a person didn't stop. So this is not a case where management would have been the nicer option. Fanta was the most uncomplicated dog I've ever had. He spent most of his at-home hours dozing on the couch or snuggling with whoever joined him there. Being petted on the head by someone he didn't know well would not change his feelings about people, it would just cause him to walk away. And that's what he did after trying to beg for food from three different people who all pet-pet-petted him on the head. He'd not try begging from me because he knew I wouldn't feed him, but I suppose he thought he might be able to convince a guest. After he received the well-meaning petting consequence three times, he went to his couch and watched from there. And he certainly preferred being part of the social event from his couch to being crated or put into another room. I had a group over and we had snacks on the table. (laughs) They were not dog people, but of course they wanted to pet the dog. So I just told them, yeah, yeah, just pet the dog when he comes over. (laughs) And very soon the dog stopped begging for food. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a very good example. (laughs) Oh, me. (laughs) (laughs) The other one I was thinking of, my mother believes that when a dog jumps up on her, she needs to knee that dog in the chest and then the dog will stop jumping up. It depends on the dogs. Honestly, if you do that to game, to my Malinois, yeah, she will be delighted. Yeah. And she will jump back even harder. And she will be like, that's amazing. I made a new friend. We're into the same games. Yeah. <laughs> that's the problem, right? If you wanted to use something like that, you have to do it so severely that the dog goes like, oh, crap. Then the risk of fallout that everybody's so worried about is really high. It's definitely here. Yeah. Because then they might not make the assumption that it's jumping up is bad. They might learn that people are bad. Yeah. I do think when we're on the topic of fallout, we, the positive reinforcement community as a whole, I'm sure there's many exceptions, but as a whole, will make you believe, especially new trainers, that any punishment you use has fallout. And that is not true. It has a potential for fallout, but when we use mild aversives, the risk is very small. And even if you have fallout, if the dog makes the wrong assumption, you can build them back up pretty quickly if it wasn't a severe punishment. So you can be like, hey, you made the wrong assumption and you can teach them through positive reinforcement that it's okay or the assumption they made was wrong and you can undo the fallout as well. But that is very hard to undo if the punishment was severe. Yes. I agree. And that's maybe 2% of all cases or 1% of all cases where it is justified and a good idea to use extreme punishment like pain. 
There are for sure situations where this happens, but most dog trainers, even professional dog trainers, will not come across that situation in their lifetime. So if you actually use severe punishment, you should have a really good plan to make sure that the dog makes the right association. Yeah, and a really good reason. I think it's life or death, right? If we go exactly, yeah, I can't have a dog eating rocks. Yeah, or chihuahuas or whatever, right? <laughs> Mexico City has lots of chihuahuas. The other day, game confused one with a squirrel because they're so tiny. Oh, I, yeah, I my dog loves chasing squirrels too. And there was a lady with a chihuahua at the park where I let her chase squirrels. So I walked over on a leash and was like, "Can she sniff your dog before I let off? Because I worry she'll." Eat it. <laughs> yeah. I like game chase squirrels too. Because the squirrels are always faster. So I don't worry about the squirrels getting caught. She started running for five meters and then she was like, wait, no. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, the chihuahua hadn't even realized there was a dog running towards them. And I think it's the movement picture, right? How the animal moves. Yeah. It's like, no, that's not a squirrel. <laughs> it's a broken squirrel. Maybe that makes it more enticing. <laughs> <laughs> no, lucky they're not. Back to the topic. Yeah. We were saying that only in a life or death situation would you want to use severe punishment. And if I did, I would want to talk to at least one trainer who is well versed in the use of punishment, get their inputs and develop a training plan together with them because I know that I'm not an expert on that. Yeah. And I would always worry that if it's a life or death situation, that it will come back somehow, right? It's like just because you use the severe punishment and make the behavior go away, I think there's still a big risk of it coming back. I think it really, really depends on the specific case. Yeah. Yeah. If it's something the dog encounters on a daily, like, I don't know, if I had a small kid living with me and the dog who didn't like small kids, I would not go the punishment route because I would not trust it enough. Yeah, totally. You make a good point. If you want to go there, you really need to think hard about it, look at it from all angles, what kind of associations could be made and talk to somebody experienced because hopefully somebody experienced can tell you either the risk or the things that you haven't thought about. Or like in my case, that is not necessary. Yeah, maybe they have a better idea. Yeah, yeah. Even if you are experienced in your field of specialty, having colleagues to bounce ideas off of is so nice. And, you know, coming back to me posting in positive reinforcement forums, there was repeatedly situations where I was like, here's my opinion. I think that it warrants a punisher or an aversive. And people schooled me sometimes nicely, sometimes not so nicely. But I'll take that. I'm like, okay, I did not think about that. Or like, clearly I had it wrong. And I've learned a lot through that. So again, you should be able to have conversations. You should be able to ask questions and discuss things, but it's not possible these days. Yeah, or only in very specific circles. Yeah. I'm past the stage where I would have a discussion in some R plus Facebook group. It just takes time and energy that I could use for other things. Totally. I'd rather seek out a colleague I can have the conversation with. You, for example. Yeah, exactly. A lot of us have these people now, but if you come in new, you don't. And then all you have is those forums. And if you're in those forums that tell you you should not ever enter a balance forum because they're evil, you're going to stick to the positive reinforcement forum. And every time you ask a question, you get punished or you get shut down otherwise. And then you'll never know what's... It's almost like a cult when you think about it. You have this common enemy. All successful cults have a couple things in common. And one is they 
they have a common enemy. And in this case, the common enemy is, say, the balanced community. Then you are being isolated in a cult from the outside world. So you don't experience the things that may not be that bad in the outside world. And the positive reinforcement community these days sometimes does that too. Yeah. It's like they try to have you not even talk to these people. So you can't form your own opinion. Yeah. You just have to believe them. I remember when I first started out as a professional trainer, I was looking for a community to be a part of. I wanted a positive reinforcement community. And I signed one of those things where you, you're not signing your soul away, but it is very... Oh, yeah, yeah. Like a pledge or something. Basically, I swear I will never do X, Y, and Z. I left that group later on. So I'm free to use XYZ if I see so fit. And I have learned that I won't sign something like that anymore. If you only let me be part of your community, if I say that never in my life will I use positive punishment with any dog ever, like I can't sign that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's not right. And what happens? Positive reinforcement trainers want, I think they want balanced trainers to learn better and do better, but they're not going to come to your community. No, because your community is really not inviting. Yeah. Yeah. Like they already told you you're evil and you're using those tools. So why would you even want to go there? Or we're taking this away from you. Like you can come, but you can't do what you're currently doing. Or there's this sneaky way of saying, oh, I'm so open minded. If you're a balanced trainer you can come talk to me i will show you the light yeah yeah i will show you how to do things better you're very welcome i'll be very nice but the assumption already is that you as the positive reinforcement trainer are somehow the better person yes and morally superior but that's bullshit i have so much to learn from ex-balance trainer and ex-balance trainer may have equally much to learn from me but it's a mutual thing it's like hot luck This is future me again. I want to add something here that I believe is crucial. It is indeed bullshit when a person enters a conversation with the assumption of moral superiority. It is that assumption itself that is the problem. If one person a priori assumes that they are quote-unquote better on a human level, that conversation won't go anywhere. This is not metaphysics. This is not a philosophy class. This is about something very practical, dog training. Conversations only go anywhere if we meet each other at eye level on a level playing field. All conversation partners need to agree on that level playing field. Conversations about dog training methods are not about who is the better person. They really have to be about the matter at hand, which is the very practical question of what a training plan could look like for a particular learner in a particular environment and with a particular goal. All right, back to the original conversation. If you enter the conversation with curiosity, why the other day, one of my balance trainer friends put up a video, cringeworthy. I was like, what is going on? So I sent a private message to that person. I'm like, hey, if I were to do that, it was about resource guarding and using a shock collar to punish the dog for any aggressive type behaviors. And I was like, why wouldn't you counter condition and start there? He made an argument that I don't remember because to me it didn't make sense. In that case, I couldn't see it. But other times I made a certain assumption and I'm like, okay, I wouldn't do that because X, Y, Z. And then they explained to me why they're doing that and why what I would do has a risk potential or something like that. And then I go, oh yeah, that makes sense. That might be the better way to do it. Or I can just be like, I see your point. I still don't go there. But now I have that in my pocket because there might be another situation where what they said applies and I can do it in a way that less intense. Yeah, it's okay to disagree. And it should be okay to reach out and share our experiences without feeling that we're attacking each other. The assumption should be that this person is curious. That's probably 
probably what you were when you sent that message. If you have a good relationship with that person, rather than shutting you down or blocking you from their friends, they will explain their point of view. And then you can disagree or agree. Yeah. And for what it did to me, I saw this video and I started changing my opinion about that person because I was like, I thought we were seeing eye to eye, but like, mm, it doesn't seem like it. And so I just reached out for clarification, but not, hey, what the heck are you doing? Not publicly. Just can you explain to me why you think this is the best way to go about it? The argument he made sort of made sense to me, but it still didn't. At least I could be like, okay, I can see where you're coming from. Reasoning. You have a plan. You're not just a jerk. And I do believe that he solved this problem in the end, but not that not mostly my way. So it's not what I would do. But um, yeah. I don't know. Just talk to each other, please. Yeah, but that's okay. We can have a conversation and come to the conclusion that we would not solve that problem in the same way. And that's fine. That doesn't mean that I'm a better person than you are or yeah. anything like that. We think can still friends and have training conversations. We won't do everything the same all the time. That's just the way the world works. Yeah. I mean, I would argue that this dog didn't have the best experience that he could have. There could be a better training experience. But still, in the end, the problem got fixed pretty quickly. The dog got to keep his home, got to stay alive and got to enjoy freedom because it became trustworthy. Because that dog trainer does use a lot of positive reinforcement, is very skilled with it too. It was definitely not just punish everything away. There was lots of other things going on and bonding and relationship building. So I think this dog was helped in the end was it the best way i'm not convinced but but does it matter in the end does it matter if it's the best way as long as the dog was helped could keep its home and is living a happy life yeah i think it matters but not enough to try and put that person out of their business or make sure they don't lay their hands on dogs anymore probably that trainer really resonated with their client and he was able to have the client commit to the training plan and get it done also it was a board and train a lot of positive reinforcement trainers won't offer board and train it was a solution for this dog and client and in the end the dog was happier so it's not something to get all worked up maybe a little worked up but not so much that we start calling them names and death threats and cancel them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Going back to that Facebook post you made the other day, what I really, really liked was how you framed it. You ended that post saying that you are a safe person to talk to if someone wants to talk about options other than positive reinforcement you won't be going at their throat and you've invited people to seek you out if they want to have those conversations. That was such a good way of framing it because it's really about building a culture where we can have conversations, don't have to be afraid that we'll be attacked immediately and where we can learn from each other. Yeah, and I also wanted to say I'm a safe person too. Anyone who wants to talk about anything really, my consultations are by default confidential. Yes, I think when I was only hanging out in positive reinforcement circles, I was a decent trainer, not amazing. I made a big leap once I entered balance training forums. There are some forums that I left immediately. They were praising terrible training and other forums that I very much enjoyed. So if anybody wants some pointers on where to look, I could help with that as well. Uh, or podcasts and things like that. I think it really helped me get a better trainer, listening to Balance Trainer, seeing it from all angles and just understanding and thinking about those things that even if you don't use it, it just makes you a better trainer. 
If nothing else, it makes you way better in arguing against those things because you understand where the problems lie, what could happen. The arguments from some of the positive reinforcement people against punishment don't hold up if you fully understand. They don't fully understand what balance trainers are doing. So then you're just like, well, I can't argue with you because you don't understand what we're talking about. Yeah, it is totally fine if you want to try and always exclusively use positive reinforcement. There is nothing wrong with this whatsoever. But if you're going to publicly argue that other methods are bad, I challenge you to go and watch and see those other methods first. So you have an informed opinion. That's your own opinion that you have come to and not just something you have heard someone say. Yes, totally. Yeah. I feel like we are positive reinforcement trainer bashing here. That is absolutely not what I'm trying to do. It's just what I have learned over the course of being a professional trainer is like you, I have definitely become a better trainer when I sought out other people to learn from as well. And also I have learned that there are excellent trainers and not very skilled trainers in all kinds of philosophies. It's really not about what philosophy you have. It is about your timing yeah. and your mechanics and about providing clarity to your learner. You're totally right. We're not against positive reinforcement trainers. I'm just disappointed, sad that I can't have conversations, that conversations get shut down. That's it. And that people don't even look or talk. It's just, we don't even go there. I just don't think that's right. But that doesn't mean I have things against people personally. And I will continue participating in the positive reinforcement community. I'm not like, I'm done, I'm gone. I just, it doesn't feel like the perfect fit for me. Yeah. I wish it was because neither does the balanced training community. No, and the thing is, whatever, I'm just doing what makes sense to me. The people who I share with are on that same wavelength and they're in different camps. I don't need to be in any camp there at all anymore. Yeah, totally. And also for my own dogs, I really do like trying to come up with intricate positive reinforcement training plans because I really enjoy that because I'm a training geek. I don't mind spending three years working on something because it's really fun for me. As long as I'm not frustrating my dog and nobody else is being hurt by it, that's not a problem at all. Like, why not? If you've read my food distraction recall entries on my blog about chai, it's like that, where I feel like I'm playing a strategy game with my dog and we're just having so much fun because it's about the journey, not about the result. Yeah. That's not the case for every client. Clients have limited resources, both in terms of time and money. And also maybe they didn't want a training project. They just wanted a dog. Yeah. And we can't expect them to be willing to put in that much time and energy. Yeah. I agree. And all I can say is be kind, enter conversations with curiosity, and that's all I'm asking for. <laughs> yeah, be kind to your fellow human beings, not only to your dog. Yes. Well, thank you so much for taking the time and having a conversation with me. I hope I'll see you back on the, or hear you back on the podcast soon. We'll have to do this more often. Sure, I'm up for it. For sure. Okay, well, have a lovely evening. Yeah. Yeah. We will talk to each other soon, probably in a couple minutes. <laughs> Sounds good. Bye. All right.